You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 272, Chasing the Swamp Fox. Well, we've been away from the Southern Command for the last few episodes. We last checked in on the Southern Command in episode 268, when Patriot Militia, primarily over mountain men from the frontier, defeated a large group of Loyalist Militia under the command of British Major Patrick Ferguson at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Now, after losing his Loyalist fighters, the British commander in the South, General Charles Cornwallis, pulled out of North Carolina, abandoning his occupation of Charlotte to regroup in South Carolina. Cornwallis was awaiting the arrival of reinforcements under the command of General Alexander Leslie. General Clinton had sent Leslie to conduct raids in Virginia, but after the loss of the Loyalists at Kings Mountain, Cornwallis requested that Leslie bring his 1,500 men by sea to Charleston so that a larger force could make another push into North Carolina from the south. At the time, though, the Continental Army in the South was more theoretical than threatening. The Southern Army, under General Horatio Gates, was almost completely eliminated at the Battle of Camden back in August. Almost all the Continental soldiers in that battle were killed or captured. The militia, many from out of state, simply fled back to their homes and no longer existed as a fighting unit. Gates himself abandoned the army and fled nearly 200 miles in a matter of days to Hillsboro, North Carolina. And despite the absence of an enemy army in his front, General Cornwallis still had to spend much of his time paying attention to his rear. Much of that was thanks to the efforts of Colonel Francis Marion. Even before the Battle of Camden, General Horatio Gates had sent Marion off to harass the enemy in guerrilla fighting, apart from the main army. With the dissolution of the army after Camden, Marion was largely on his own. He wrote to Gates regularly, hoping to get more men or supplies, but usually heard back nothing. At one point, following Camden, Marion had no more than a dozen men with him. He almost never had more than 60 or 70 at any time. In some cases, men who served under him had joined Loyalist regiments, trying to get on the winning team after Camden made things look so bad for the Patriots. Marion's desperate task was to keep the rebellion alive in South Carolina and deny undisputed British control of the state. Marion had made it his goal to be the biggest headache for the British in the South following the American loss at Camden. His focus was on disrupting travel and communications between Camden and Charleston in eastern South Carolina. Marion was not at Camden because General Gates considered him far more valuable operating in enemy territory and disrupting whatever he could, rather than participating in a more traditional line battle. 
Over the summer and fall of 1780, Marion's men were sowing chaos among British control over South Carolina. Marion began his post-Camden campaign by capturing a British detail that was escorting American prisoners from the Battle of Camden. In late August of 1780, Marion received word that a British force of 90 regulars were escorting about 150 prisoners from the Maryland and Delaware lines who had been captured at Camden and were taking them to a POW camp. Marion attacked the party at night, capturing 23 of the enemy and freeing all of the prisoners. For some reason I don't entirely understand, a majority of the freed prisoners expressed a desire to continue their march to Charleston, where they would be held as prisoners of war. Marion tried to get the remainder to join his militia force, but almost all of the men dropped away over the next few days. In the end, only three of the 150 liberated prisoners remained with Marion for any length of time. Another 60 or so made their way back and rejoined their corps back in North Carolina. Shortly after Marion's raid freed the prisoners, a Loyalist militia officer named Makaija Ganey attempted to capture Marion, who he learned was camped near Ports Ferry. Ganey had raised about 250 Loyalist militia and rode out to capture the troublesome Marion and the 50 or so partisans that were camped with him at the time. Marion learned about the enemy coming at him. He could have retreated further west, but did not want to cede control of the region to the Loyalists. He also could have found a good defensive ground and met the enemy on ground of his choosing, but Marion was more comfortable when moving. Instead, he decided to ride toward the larger force in early September in hopes of catching them by surprise. Marion sent an advance guard under local King Street militia Major John James to locate the enemy. When one of James's scouts did locate the enemy, the Major spurred his horse forward to attack. James spotted the enemy commander among the small group of local militia and charged directly at the commander. Just before reaching the enemy, James looked back to find out that none of his men had charged along with him, and that he was galloping at the enemy on his own. Thinking quickly, he turned around and shouted at no one, Come on, boys, here they are! Now, that was enough to spook Major Ganey and the Loyalists who were with him into thinking that he really was leading a larger enemy force that would be upon them in seconds. So they wheeled their horses and galloped away. From a captured prisoner, Marion learned that the main contingent of Loyalists was on the march about three miles away in an area known as Blue Savannah, about ten miles southeast of the modern town of Marion, South Carolina. There, Marion's forces ran into the main Loyalist force. Since Major Ganey was not with the main force, second-in-command Captain Jesse Bearfield was in charge. Bearfield had learned how to fight as an officer serving under Marion earlier in the war. But after receiving some slight from another officer and getting no resolution from Marion, Marion resigned his commission in the Patriot Militia and returned home. He later signed up with the Loyalist Militia and was now facing his old commander in battle. Bearfield drew his militia into a line of battle and prepared to meet Marion's charge of about 50 horsemen. Seeing a charge across that distance as a deadly mistake, Marion pulled up and called for a retreat. Then, seeing his advantage, Bearfield marched his men forward after the fleeing enemy. 
Marion, however, as soon as his horsemen were out of the woods and out of sight, circled around and ambushed the enemy. Marion's 50 horsemen charged the enemy line, which stood and delivered a volley, knocking three of Marion's men off their horses. But the charge continued. Marion later reported killing or wounding about 30 of the enemy while suffering four wounded among his own men. The remainder of the loyalists fled into a nearby swamp where the horsemen did not follow. Marion had successfully dispersed the Tory militia and had restored some hope that British control of the region was not a fait accompli. About 60 local militia soon joined Marion, doubling the size of his force. Even before the attack at Blue Savannah, Cornwallis realized that he needed to deal with Marion. Recall back in episode 267, in September of 1780, Cornwallis was still focused on moving his army into North Carolina and capturing Charlotte. He deployed Loyalist Major James Wemus to take care of Marion. Wemus took with him a regiment of British regulars and called on any Loyalist forces to provide support to rooting out Marion and his partisans. Wemus had to march his men about 150 miles to reach Marion's forces. To accomplish this, he decided he wanted to mount his infantry. Horses were difficult to come by, so Wemus ordered all local farmers to meet with him. When they complied and came to the meeting, Wemus went on a long and rambling speech about how the British were there to rescue them and that they were not doing enough to help. The speech didn't really persuade anyone, but then again it really wasn't meant to. While he spoke, Wemus had sent his men to travel to all of the farms and confiscate any horses they found. The farmers soon learned what had happened, but the British now had all their horses, and there really wasn't anything they could do about it. As Major Wemus rode his mounted infantry toward King Street, Major James, the same officer who tried to charge the enemy in line by himself, managed to capture the rear guard of the mounted infantry. He brought his prisoners back to Marion, who interrogated them. Marion learned that the British had an assembled force of about 800 Loyalist militia and regulars in the region, while Marion had a force of only about 100 militia. He held a council of war with his top officers, who could not really decide what to do. Some of them wanted to attack despite the numbers. Others called for them to disperse and go into hiding until the enemy returned to other duties. In the end, Marion agreed that it was best to lay low for a while. He dismissed most of the men, retaining a local contingent of about 15 men to collect intelligence, and leading another 60 or so northward into the swamps, and eventually into North Carolina. So that he could march faster, he spiked his captured cannons and dumped them in the swamp. With Marion's men out of the way, Major Wemus began a campaign of destruction, burning homes, churches, and destroying whatever he could among the rebellious population. His men shot cows, burned farming equipment and mills, even hanged anyone they believed had participated in the rebellion, including a number of Marion's men whom he had sent home until the heat was off. By late September, Marion and his men returned to South Carolina. By this time, the Loyalist militia was scattered throughout the region, camped in small groups. Although Marion's men had been resting for the last two weeks, they had fought another deadly enemy. Swarms of mosquitoes had left much of his force sick with malaria. Marion learned that Loyalist Colonel John Cumming Ball was camped with a few dozen Loyalists' militia 
near Dollar's Tavern on Black Mingo Creek. The Loyalists did not realize that Marion had returned to the region and were mostly sleepy in camp or drinking in the tavern. Marion's men approached the tavern after dark on September 25th. An alert Loyalist picket fired an alarm shot, at which point Marion and his men charged the tavern. Marion figured that the British would mount a defense from the tavern, but Colonel Ball heard the alarm and led his men into a dark field to the west of the tavern. A contingent of Marion's force under Militia Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Hoory was marching toward the tavern when they unknowingly marched in front of Ball's hidden Loyalists. The Loyalists fired a deadly volley from about 30 yards away, taking down three of Hoory's officers. The rest of Marion's force quickly realized the enemy was in the woods near the tavern and moved to intercept them. A short fight ensued as the Loyalists retreated into nearby Black Mingo Swamp. The Patriots had managed to kill or wound three of the enemy and captured or wounded another 13, taking two killed and eight wounded from among their own. Most of the Loyalists had escaped, but lost their guns, horses, and supplies to the enemy. Now, following the victory at Black Mingo Creek, many of Marion's men wanted to return home and check on their farms. The Loyalists had burned so many homes that the men needed to see their families. Once again, Marion's force dwindled to about 60 men. About a week later, in early October, Marion's men moved on to Georgetown, a coastal town which, at the time, had the second largest population in the state, behind only Charleston. A few days earlier, the British had a contingent of about 250 regulars and militia at Georgetown. But almost the entire force had marched off for Camden in late September, just a few days after Marion had attacked the Loyalists at Black Mingo. This was when Cornwallis was still trying to secure North Carolina by taking Charlotte, and just about the same time that the Overmountain men were attacking the Loyalists at King's Mountain. The British had left a small garrison at Georgetown. While Marion's attacking force was larger, the garrison had a good defensive position that Marion could not take without cannon. Marion also knew that if he hung around too long, that reinforcements would arrive for the enemy and drive him out. So instead of attacking, Marion paraded his men down Main Street, just to show that the British were not in control. He captured several prominent loyalists in town, who he immediately paroled and allowed to return to their homes. His men then rode off with some of the horses and supplies that they captured from the garrison. A few weeks later, Marion learned of a Tory militia group commanded by Colonel Samuel Tynes, about 50 miles to his west, at a place called Tearcoat Swamp. Tynes had once been a part of the Patriot Militia, but he had switched sides and had become a local leader for the Loyalists. As Marion moved to catch up with Colonel Tynes, he managed to recruit militia for the action, bringing his numbers back up to around 150 men, still smaller than the 200-man Tory force that he planned to attack. Despite their numbers, on October 25th, Marion's attackers managed to surprise the Loyalist militia camped at Tearcoat Swamp. Marion's men approached the camp through the forest at night, avoiding enemy pickets on the main road. Marion divided his men, who attacked the camp from three directions in this night attack. The enemy was completely unaware of the attack until after it began, and few of them even mounted a defense. Marion's militia killed six of the enemy, wounded 14, and captured another 23. Perhaps more importantly for Marion, 
his men captured about 80 horses and saddles, as well as a cache of badly needed muskets. Marion did not lose any of his men in the fight. The bulk of the surprised enemy, including Colonel Tynes, managed to escape into the nearby woods. Marion's men spent the next few days trying to track down the enemy. They managed to capture Tynes at one point, but he escaped his captors and fled once again. By the time Marion launched his attack at Tearcoat Swamp in late October, the British were reeling from their loss at Kings Mountain, and Cornwallis was pulling his forces out of North Carolina back into South Carolina for regrouping over the winter. This focused even more British attention on Marion. On top of all the military setbacks, much of the British army, including Cornwallis himself, was suffering from malaria. Marion's attacks had made it almost impossible to recruit more Loyalist militia or move supplies between towns without being captured. With Cornwallis still in a sickbed, some of his junior officers took a more active role. Colonel George Turnbull had been a captain in the regular army before the war. He had resigned his commission and settled in New York. When the revolution began, Turnbull raised the Loyal American Regiment of New York and soon rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He took his regiment of New York Loyalists to the South when Clinton took Charleston and took an ever-increasingly important role under Cornwallis's effort to subdue the South. Turnbull requested that it was time to bring in the A-team to take out Marion's partisans once and for all. Now, everyone had come to believe that the man who could make this happen was Colonel Bannister Tarleton. For the prior few months, Tarleton had been laid out with a bad case of malaria. As I said, a great many British officers and men were sick with this mosquito-borne illness, but by November, Tarleton was ready to get back into the saddle. The first thing Tarleton wanted to do was get more horses. He had a combination of cavalry and infantry under his command, and he constantly had to wait for his infantry to catch up, blunting the power of his speedy advances on the enemy. Tarleton's men began confiscating every horse they could find, Soon he had a force of about 400 men, all mounted. He also carried with him two pieces of field artillery. By November 7th, Tarleton's force was in the field, camped at the plantation of General Richard Richardson, a Patriot officer who had been captured at the fall of Charleston. Richardson had been released to go home after getting sick, but died a short time after returning home. Tarleton knew Marion was in the area. He concealed most of his legion in the woods and spread the word that they had left the area. A few men built up large campfires to make their position obvious. Marion received word of the Loyalist encampment and led an assault force to ambush them in a night attack. He was about two miles from the plantation when he came across a rider, Captain Richard Richardson, the son of the deceased general. Richardson informed Marion that his force was riding into a trap, that he would find Tarleton's full legion ready and waiting for him, and that they were backed up by artillery. With this warning, Marion's men retreated about six miles before dawn. However, as they retreated, a Loyalist prisoner that was with Marion's men managed to escape. He rode to Tarleton's camp and informed the colonel that Marion had discovered the trap and just fled. Marion was aware that the prisoner had escaped, and he assumed that Tarleton would learn of his whereabouts. So instead of resting, Marion and his men continued their retreat, and the chase was on. Tarleton's men pursued Marion's smaller force. 
After trying to ride down the retreating Patriots all day, Tarleton gave up and announced that, quote, As for this old damned fox, the devil himself could not catch him. It's generally believed that this resulted in Marion gaining the nickname, the Swamp Fox. An exasperated Tarleton returned to the Richardson plantation, where he took out his frustration on Richardson's widow. He dug up the general's body to torment the family and ordered the widow to be flogged. He also had his men put all of the plantation's livestock into the barn and then set it on fire, killing all of them. His men then burned another 30 plantations in the region to punish the locals for providing support to Marion's militia. A few days later, Cornwallis recalled Tarleton. As soon as the Legion left the area, Marion and his men returned to assert control of the region. Next week, despite the absence of a Continental Army in the region, the British under General Cornwallis remained frustrated in their efforts to control South Carolina as Militia General Thomas Sumter and others continued to defy British control of the state. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. Welcome also to Justin Scarpacci, who joined the podcast on Patreon at the Privy Council level, and to Patrick Toft, Mario Sacchetti, James Matisic, Henry Hazel, and Colton Kinzer, who joined last month at the Standard Bearer level. You can all look forward to receiving your first monthly magnet later this month. All of my Patreon supporters at the $10 level or higher get a new magnet each month with a different flag from the American Revolution. Thanks also to Michael Anzalone, Peter J. Rogers Jr., and Ann Martin for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. All of your support helps me to cover the costs of running this podcast, and I very much appreciate it. One quick correction this week. In several recent episodes, I talked about some of the actions taking place in the Mohawk Valley of New York. 
I referred to the region as Skohari. Robert Pulsifer wrote to correct my pronunciation of the region. It should be Skohari, not Skohari. Thanks for the correction, Robert. I will try to pronounce it more accurately in the future. And I do appreciate these corrections, as I'm always working to improve wherever I can. This week, we went over some of the efforts of Colonel Francis Marion, also known as the Swamp Fox. Marion's deeds have been pretty well documented. He's been a popular topic in many children's books, as well as a few adult books. I probably had my first introduction to him on Walt Disney's episodes of The Swamp Fox, starring Leslie Nielsen. Marion's story of an underdog fighting almost Robin Hood style against British occupiers really does make for a great adventure story, and many authors have used it as such. Even though many of the stories have been a bit fictionalized, the true story of Marion is an important one. Many at the time, including Washington himself, often thought that militia were worse than useless. They were often not cool under fire and could not stand in sustained combat. But Marion's guerrilla actions were a critical distraction to the British. It played an important role in delaying Cornwallis from moving northward and also kept alive the cause in South Carolina. It encouraged many people who were prepared to give up and accept British rule in the South to keep that necessary spark of hope alive and continue the fight. The story of the Swamp Fox and those who followed him is the story of Americans who would not be ruled against their will. They were willing to put their lives on the line and they would wage a guerrilla war to prevent the British Army and its loyalist allies from asserting control. I've already recommended another Marion biography in an earlier episode, but there are quite a few good ones out there, so I have no hesitation about recommending another one today. Now, this is one I hadn't read until recently, but I very much enjoyed it. It's called Swamp Fox, The Life and Campaigns of General Francis Marion by Robert Duncan Bass. Now, this is an older book. It was first published in 1959. Bass, however, is a serious author. He was a college professor who wrote several books related to the American Revolution in South Carolina. His book on Marion is not terribly long. The edition I have is just under 250 pages, not counting notes and index. It's not really a true biography because it really, almost the entire book covers just his wartime exploits, not his entire life. They're summarized at the beginning and the end. But that, of course, is the most interesting part of Marion's life to most people, and this does a good job of covering Francis Marion's wartime years. So if you're looking for a good book about Francis Marion and his time in the American Revolution, Bass's Swamp Fox is a great choice. Now, if you haven't already guessed, my online recommendation is Disney's The Swamp Fox, starring Leslie Nielsen. This is the one I said I watched as a kid, really got me interested in Francis Marion and, and probably to some extent the American Revolution in general. You can watch the original episodes of Disney's The Swamp Fox. They were made in the late 50s and early 60s and are available on YouTube. Now, of course, the story is a bit fictionalized, but it's a fun show to watch. And until someone can make a new and better movie about Francis Marion, I guess this one's going to have to do and I do find it enjoyable. Don't watch it for historical accuracy. Do watch it because it's an enjoyable story. 
I suppose you could compare it to the fictionalized stories that Disney did of Robin Hood or Zorro. But the story of the Swamp Fox, of course, is set in the American Revolution, the era we've all come to love and enjoy. So, if you get a chance, check out Disney's The Swamp Fox. As I said, it's available on YouTube, may be available elsewhere, but I find it there and it's enjoyable to watch. My question this week asks, what were the primary grievances of the American colonists that led to the outbreak of the Revolutionary War? Well, initially the complaint was that Parliament had no authority to levy direct taxes on the colonies. This was based on the principle of taxation without representation, which is a phrase we've all heard a million times. Now, contrary to popular belief, the fight was not over taxes being too high, and many people like to point out taxes in the American colonies were actually lower than they were in Britain. But the question was over who had the authority to levy taxes. Now, Britain had fought an entire civil war a century earlier over this same principle. In that case, it was the king who was trying to levy taxes directly. But the Civil War established that only Parliament could levy taxes because it was a representative body of those paying the taxes. The colonies took that same principle to mean that only colonial legislatures could levy taxes on colonists because that was where the colonists were represented. They all fell under the authority of the king but each part of the empire had its own local legislature, which raised taxes. Now, why does this matter? Well, we all know that the main thing in any age that restrains politicians from raising taxes is the threat of being removed from office by the voters if they raise taxes too high. Britain was in debt after the Seven Years' War, and yet Parliament cut taxes in Britain after the war because voters thought that the taxes were too high and Parliament wanted to satisfy its voters. Colonists, who had no vote in Parliament, posed no danger of throwing out leaders who voted for a tax hike on them. As a modern example, imagine if the UN attempted to levy taxes on Americans. Our fight would not be over the level of taxation, it would be over the UN's authority to levy taxes at all. This was no philosophical debate, either. Colonial leaders were well aware of other parts of the empire that Britain had sucked dry of all wealth, leaving the locals to starve to death when bad times hit. The taxes in North America were initially small, but once the precedent was accepted by the colonists that Parliament could levy these taxes, there would be no limit on how far they could be raised in the future. Now, Parliament had never attempted to levy direct taxes on the colonies prior to the mid-1760s, so the colonists had precedent on their side that Parliament lacked authority to do this. Members of Parliament, however, disagreed. They held that they had taxing authority over the entire empire. The fact that they had not levied taxes in the past on the colonies was a matter of policy and not a matter of constitutional rights. The situation remained a matter of protests, not war, for about a decade but the protests could get particularly rough at times. London raised the stakes following the Boston Tea Party. It passed what became known as the Intolerable Acts, which essentially closed Boston Harbor and revoked most of the Massachusetts Colonial Charter, replacing many elected officials with those appointed by officials in London. Now, that destruction of representative government led to 
armed resistance against any attempts by the new appointed government to control Massachusetts, and that very quickly led to the battles of Lexington and Concord. Parliament had focused the intolerable acts against Massachusetts, which was seen as the epicenter of colonial rebellion. It hoped to make an example of Massachusetts so that the other states would be afraid and would fall in line. Instead, it had the opposite effect. It convinced other colonies to work more closely together to oppose this imposition on what they saw as their basic rights, their colonial charters, which spelled out the rights and powers between Britain and each colony. If Britain could just revoke those unilaterally, then colonies really had no guaranteed rights at all. It led directly to the meeting of the First Continental Congress to coordinate opposition to British policy in this area. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.